0: Come from 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 9 through 12. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now a people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may be your good works, which they observe. Glorify God in the day of visitation." Our lesson will be coming out of First Peter uh, this morning. We're going to do an overview of the book. Um, so go ahead and leave your Bible open there. And uh, if you haven't opened your Bible, please do so. You'll be able to follow right along, I hope. So we've got a good crowd this morning. Thank you so much for your presence here. And, uh, and if we can encourage you as the Graeber Road Church body, we'd love to do that. We've got a number of visitors. We're thankful so much for your presence this morning and hope that you'll uh, feel welcome. Hope that you'll stick around for a few minutes after our services get to our uh, finish so that we can get to know you just a little bit better. But thank you so much for being here today. Church, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust your leadership? Do you trust the elders who shepherd our souls? If you do then listen to what I'm going to say. There are a few things in this life that are more important than what's going to be going on two weekends from now here at the Grey Road Church of Christ. March 5th, March 6th, March 7th are going to be days that are going to be imperative to you being equipped to be everything that God wants you to be. We have a sign-up sheet on the table in the foyer, if you wouldn't mind, if you know that you're going to be present here for that uh, workshop with Robin Nicole Whitaker, with Rob as he preaches and teaches us, if you know that you're going to be here and that you're ready to become a better teacher and uh, proclaimer of God's word, would you please sign up on that? Would you please let us know? Would you please make that a priority in your life? Again, there's almost nothing in this life that's more important than what's going to be happening on that weekend two weekends from now. Please, please, please sign up and I know that you'll be blessed by being here. There's an old story about a teacher who uh, had second third grade students. And the teacher, as she's uh, teaching her, her day, she knows there's one little girl and the little girl's got a Fitbit and she noticed that the Fitbit seems to be a little bit too large for her. Of course, she's kind of a petite little girl anyway. And the teacher, she's looking at this little girl and, uh, and thinking about her, she would ask, okay, little Susie, would you get up and would you go erase the chalkboard? One of those blackboard, whiteboard, whatever they use nowadays, electronic board. Little Susie would get up and with all the vigor she could, she'd take as many steps as she could and go up and race the, race the whiteboard and then run back with the same amount of vigor and sit back down in her seat. And the teacher thought that was just so funny. She would uh, say, all right, it's time to go for recess. And the little girl would just get so excited and she'd, uh, she'd run and she'd pump her arms and everything. And the teacher finally got uh, so amused at little Susie, she went over and said, little Susie, I noticed that you got one of those Fitbits, those step counters. And little Susie said, yes, I do. And she said, oh, well, well, do you like wearing it? She said, oh, yes, I do. And she said, so uh, uh, how long have you had it? And she said, well, it's not mine. The teacher's amusement now turned into a little bit of concern. She says, not yours. She said, no. She said, mommy gives it to me every morning as I leave the house, and then I give it back to her so she can show daddy how many steps she got during the day. <laughs> Sometimes... We're invested in taking somebody else's steps. We're invested in taking somebody else's, well, their life and the way that they conduct themselves. And we take that for granted. And we take those steps because somebody else tells us to take those steps. Not necessarily because we want to take them ourselves, but because we're given something that that somebody tells us this is what's right. That Somebody tells us this is what we need to do. Consider, parents... You hopefully let your kids know we're going to make church a priority. We're going to make worship a priority. Coming to church, being people that please God, being people that are faithful in our attendance, this is what we do as a family. And because those children, up until a certain age, are a part of that home, you're not going to leave them at home by themselves. They're going to get in the car every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, every Wednesday night, every time the doors are open, because we've made church a priority in our household. And those kids are going to take the steps because you have given them the steps to take. You've said, this is what's important for us as a family, and this is what we're going to do. What happens when those children have to start taking steps for themselves? What happens whenever they decide what's going to be a priority in my life? Hopefully, our desire as parents is that our children are going to take what we have given them and say, this is mine alone and this is what I want to do because I know it's right. These are the steps that I want to take because you've given me this faith and now I want to make that faith my own. I want to take these steps because I know this is what pleases God, not just because this is what mom and dad tell me that we have to do. When we have steps that need to be taken, we cannot live on somebody else's faith and expect that that's going to carry us through, especially when times get difficult and especially when times get hard. You see, when we get to 1 Peter, things are about to become real to these Christians. They are about to begin to face a persecution and that has already begun at that time that Peter wrote this and this persecution is going to be something that's really going to test whether or not these Christian and their steps are genuine or whether or not they're taking them for somebody else. And Peter is writing to them in 1 Peter and telling them all of these trials, these difficulties that you're about to go through and may already be experiencing, all of these things are something that can glorify God. You're about to go through suffering. You're about to go through difficulty. The question is, Christians, as people who may or may not already be in the midst of difficulty, are we taking the right steps? And are we taking the steps that we know are going to be pleasing to God? Or is it just something that we're living on somebody else's Fitbit? that we're living with somebody else's faith and hoping that that's going to carry us through. Peter tells these Christians, as they begin to take these steps that are going to lead them through the path of suffering, and he's going to talk to them, and he says the major message, the major point of what he's trying to get across to them is the greatness of what we're doing, the greatness of the salvation that we've obtained, the greatness of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work is something that's going to help carry us through. What we've obtained it's going to help us to keep going. And keep taking those steps, Christians, because the journey and the destination are both worth it. Keep walking forward. Keep moving because it's worth it. Let's talk about 1 Peter this morning. And I want to talk, to, uh, talk uh, about it with you in terms of four words that are very important to this epistle. Four words that you're going to see over and over repeated throughout this epistle and if you don't have Bible marking pens, or if you like to mark in your Bible, but you don't have those Bible marking pens, I'm going to give you a particular color to color code these things because they're important to the book. And the next time you go through, you can take a look and say, I see these important words that are important to First Peter. First word this morning, what's First Peter all about? First Peter is all about, helps if I turn on my clicker, First Peter is a book about suffering. That's the first word we're going to encounter, the word suffering. There's a lot of debate about when Peter was written, 1 Peter was written. I tend to lean towards those, and you can do an academic study or a study about this. I tend to lean towards those who, or I agree with those who have timed it about the time of the end of the Emperor Nero, about 64 to 65 A.D., Emperor Nero was, he was quite the character, if you can say that. He, uh, his, he quickly gained popularity as he came into power. He was stood before the Roman Senate and said, listen, this is going to be a partnership. In fact, what he wanted to do, quote, was to eliminate all the ills of the previous regime. And he, he had respect for all, he had power for all in the Senate, and, and he wanted to get in there and clean house to drain the swamp, as we might say today. That was his purpose. And yet, over the next several years of Nero's reign, what he did was he gradually became more and more corrupt. He gradually began to eliminate, to kill his political advisors. In fact, he killed his own mother. He put her in a collapsible boat and sent her across the lake, and, and where the boat should have failed, she, uh, she finished swimming to shore, and then he had somebody, an assassin, come and murder her in a villa. And during that time, after that time, he grew more and more mentally unstable, In fact, he married the wife of his best friend, and as as she was pregnant with her second child uh, by him, he, in a casual fit of rage, the uh, historian Tacitus says, he kicked her in the belly and killed her, just because that was what he did. And as Nero continued on in his life, one of the things he did was, uh, one of the things he's most known for is the great fire of Rome there in about July 64 A.D., You see, the rumor was that Nero didn't like the way that Rome was set out. Rome was built on seven hills. It had about 12 provinces there. And Nero saw this place that he wanted to build his palace. And so what he did, again, the rumor is, is that he set fire to Rome, destroyed completely three different provinces of Rome, and decimated about seven others. Because Nero had a plot of ground that he wanted to build his palace on. And he began to build that palace. Uh, There was a whole lot of difficulty and discouragement in that and Nero knew that he was prime suspect number one because the old story goes that he was playing his fiddle even though the fiddle hadn't been invented yet he was standing on his palace fiddling while Rome burned Nero needs a scapegoat for this fire what he did was he took this new previously unknown group of people a new previously unknown group of people that didn't really have any kind of cultural identity something that they were known for just yet and he said these people these Christians they're the ones who set fire to Rome and it wasn't so much about the scapegoat but he says they're given quote to a new mischievous religion something that's undermining the very pinnings of our society And as he talks about these Christians and about their lives, one of the things he wanted to do, he blamed the Christians not just because he needed a scapegoat, but because of his own personal cruelty. But the statement stuck. Here's what the Romans got out of this. These Christians, they're people that absolutely hate the human race. They hate the human race. They don't worship the gods we do. They don't like the same things we do. They hate people. And about this time, July 64, July 65, what Nero began to do was a persecution of the Christians such as they had never seen. First, Christians were arrested. They were given to be confessing of Christians. Guilty of this crime was a burning Rome, but the anger turned more and more to more people being convinced that they just hated the human race. Their deaths became the subject of sport. They were covered with skins of animals, torn to death by wild dogs. They were nailed to crosses. They were put on poles like what you see here on this and dipped in oil so that they could light Nero's gardens at night. They were often put in a bag with a wild animal, a burlap bag, and, 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 and they would tie up the bag so that they could watch for sport, the, the, the wild animal tearing apart this, this person that was in this bag. If you're a Christian about this time, And you have now this reputation, and people are looking at you in your life and saying, there's a person that hates the human race. Or maybe you have a knock on your door late at night and says, your neighbor said that you guys are Christians, that you get up every Sunday morning, that you go and you attend an assembly with with the people of God. Is that right? Are you one of those? Because we're about to take your life and we're about to make you really miserable. Suffering. Peter says, this is coming to you if it hasn't come to you already. And as he writes this, notice how many times this theme of suffering comes back over and over and over, but it's not just suffering for suffering's sake. It's suffering for being a Christian. It's suffering unjustly. Note these passages. Peter says, chapter 2, verse 19 through 21, For this is commendable if because of conscience towards one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it to you if you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? You may deserve suffering. If you deserve suffering and you're beaten because of it, you deserve it. He says, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, that's commendable before God. For to this you were called, Christians, because Christ who also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should walk in his steps. Notice another one, verse, chapter 2, verse 23, same chapter. Christ, who when he was reviled, didn't revile in return. When he was suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Suffering came to Jesus. Was it unjust? You can nod your head, absolutely. What Jesus suffered wasn't just. If we're following in his steps, Peter says, that's what's coming to us. Look at another one. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sakes, you're blessed. He says, don't be afraid of their threats and don't be troubled, chapter 3 and verse 14. Look at another one. For it's better if we suffer doing the will of God than for doing evil, chapter 3, verse 17. Look at another one. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. What mind? The mind that's ready to suffer for the sake of Christ. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Speaking of a Christian. Listen, when we make up our minds, we're gonna do what's right. When we realize that suffering's going to come to us for being Christians, we're looking at ourselves and we're saying, I'm gonna do what pleases God. I'm not gonna spend any more time in sin. That's a natural consequence of us making our mind up to do what's right. Look at another one, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial that's going to try you as though some strange thing has happened to us, but rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. Another one. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, as an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. There's a reason why we're going through these, but mark them as you go. Circle them in your Bible because First Peter is a book all about suffering. Another one, chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator, chapter 4, verse 19. The elders who are among you, Peter says, 1 Peter 5, verse 1, I exhort whom I am also a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Chapter 5, verse 9, talking about the devil, how he walks about as a roaring lion. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. I don't know if in our lifetime, church, that we're ever going to experience the same sufferings as what the Christians did in Peter's day, as they were experiencing there in Rome. But what I do know is the devil has a limited bag of tricks. And what I do know is the narrative is being repeated even today. Have you heard it? These Christians hate the human race. Let that sink down. Let that sink in that even in our country today, There are people who are trying to further this narrative. And the more we make up our minds that we're going to stand for biblical truth... The more we make up our mind that we're going to stand for the biblical definition of marriage, the more we make up our minds that we're going to stand for the rejection of alternative lifestyle, the more we stand up for things like the sanctity of life, the more that's going to make us a target because people see the difference and they see the difference between people who live in the world and they say, these people hate us. These people are not tolerant. These people won't accept us. And the more their sights are going to be turned on people with those values, the values of what God has told us about who He is and about what it means to be godly, to walk in His steps. Suffering, that's part of being a Christian. And Peter says to these Christians, it's coming. Peter is, secondly, a book about glory. Peter's a book about glory. The word suffering by far and away is used the most in the book of Peter, but glory is a close second. About 14 times in five chapters, 14 times the word glory is used. And I want you to notice something. All of those litany of verses that I gave you just a moment ago, how many times the word glory that we can color in gold in our Bibles, if you're into coloring in your Bible, how many times the word glory appears in the same context as the word suffering? Look at it, chapter 1, verse 7, talking about faith. He says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than the gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, reads suffering. It may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Note another one, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was then indicating when he would be testified before the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow him. Chapter 1, verse 21, Christians, you who uh, through him believe in God, have raised him up from the dead and given him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Another one that we've already used, having your conduct honorable by the Gentiles, that when uh, when they speak against you as evildoers, read, suffer, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Let none of you suffer as an evildoer or a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in the other people's business. But if you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Once again, Peter talking about himself as an elder. He says, I am partaker of the same sufferings, the sufferings of Christ, and I'm also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. God of all grace, who's called us to the eternal glory by Jesus Christ. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen you, and settle you. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Chapter five, verses ten and eleven. What I believe are the key verses of the book of First Peter is twelve and thirteen of chapter four. Beloved, don't think it's strange at the fiery trial, read suffering which is to try you, as though some strange things happen to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, there's the word glory, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. The truth is, as we walk in the steps of Jesus, those steps are going to lead us through suffering. But Jesus didn't go through suffering for no reason. Jesus didn't go to the cross for no reason. There was God trying to accomplish a purpose in Jesus' life. And as Jesus yielded his will to the Father, even though he didn't want to go to the cross, you remember he cried out in the garden, Abba, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus yielded to the will of God. And you know what resulted? The greatest glory that mankind has ever known in the glory of the gospel. When you and I follow in the steps of Jesus, Peter's saying that path is inevitably going to lead you to suffer. That path is inevitably going to lead you to things that you would not choose for yourself if you had to choose them a thousand times to make the best decision or what you thought was uh, was the best decision for you. But as we faithfully follow Jesus, we're going to go through the path of suffering, but there's going to be glory on the other side. Glory for God and for his purpose. Glory for us when we stand with him and are vindicated because of our righteousness, because of our lifestyle, because we've chosen what's right. Suffering now for glory later. Suffering now for God to be glorified. And that's our whole purpose here on earth. That's our whole purpose for being here is to bring glory to our heavenly father if that path leads us through suffering, are we going to take the steps? Or are we going to take off the Fitbit and give it back to somebody else and say, no, thanks. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to take those steps. First Peter is a book about glory after suffering. Number three, First Peter is a book about grace. Grace, 10 times. In First Peter, ten times of five chapters, about two per chapter, two times it's rendered uh, uh, commendable. What's the definition of grace? You say, well, it's unmerited favor. It's favor bestowed when wrath was owed. But consider the remarkability of statements such as this. Chapter 5, verse 12, Paul say, or excuse me, Peter says, by Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Listen to this. This is the true grace of God in which you stand. That remarkable statement is everything that he's just written about, about suffering, about glory, all of those things that he's just written about, about the difficult and fiery trial, he says, you're standing in the true grace. What's the implication? There's a false grace somewhere out there. We don't want to stand in that grace. We don't want to stand in a grace that tries to make us to where we don't have to suffer anything at all because he would say that's not the true grace. Notice, you don't have to write this down. You can go back and watch the YouTube later and and, and write it then. God's grace, as he outlines this chapter, is what brought us salvation. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. It gave salvation to you. It's not by anything good that you've done in and of yourself. It's the fact that God loved us enough that he wanted us to have this grace that he brought it to us. God's grace is what makes us holy. We're going to spend some time talking about holiness. Because I believe that's a concept in the church that we've lost far too often. About holiness. Chapter 1, verse 13 through chapter 2, verse 12. The scripture reading this morning the Peter, uh, that, uh, that, that Kenny read for us just a few moments ago. He talked about the fact that we are a holy nation, a royal nation, a a, a holy people. And he talks about that because that's what God has made us. That's what he's made us through his grace. We're different. We ought to be different. We shouldn't be taking steps that other people are taking outside in the world. Otherwise, we lose our distinctiveness. God's grace is what makes us submit. Chapter 2, verse 13 through 312. Now consider these things. Submission. It's not something we as Americans like to hear very much. We've got our pride. We've got our American pride, and we don't want to submit. But the first thing he mentions there is submitting to government. You submit to your leaders, even that awful, evil Nero and his godless decisions and things that you wouldn't have made a decision about or that you wouldn't have decided for yourself. He says, yes, you submit to those governmental leaders. He says, you submit in business. Slaves, you honor your masters. Masters, you treat your slaves right. You take care of those people that are in your life because you're different. You submit In marriage, husbands loving your wives, husbands taking care of your wives, but wives you submitting to your husbands, chapter 3 verses 1 through 8, that's a part of being a Christian, that's a part of what God's grace does. And in fact, if there's any doubt, in all life, chapter uh, 3 verses 9 through 12, in everything that you do in your life, we want to conduct ourselves as putting ourselves under somebody else, submission. Let me rephrase, putting ourselves under somebody else with the right attitude, I can obey, but not submit. I can obey, but be kicking and screaming in my head the entire time. Peter says that's not the attitude of a Christian. God's grace makes you different. And in God's grace, it helps us, it enables us to endure suffering. That's what the rest of the epistle is about. Chapter 3, verse 13, all the way through the end of chapter 5, verse 14. That's what we are called to. Every single one of those things. And realize... When he's talking about grace, folks, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of glory, it's not the warm fuzzies. It's not a a, a, a feeling of of the pricklies on the back of your neck. It's not this touchy-feely thing. This is a down-to-earth understanding that I'm divinely favored and you're divinely favored even though there's fiery trials going on. I've got a crown. I can have joy. God is glorified because he's given me his grace And I'm standing in that true grace when I face the sufferings of Christ and I face them the way He did. Are you taking those steps? Or are you wanting to turn back and do something different? Number five, number four, rather, final word. Book of First Peter is about a journey. It's about a pilgrimage. It's about a trip that we're taking. Look at how he refers to these Christians. Peter, from the downbeat, chapter 1, verse 1, apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims. Outline this in blue. Pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, and Bithynia. All of those names may be relevant and are relevant, absolutely, but the fact that he refers to them as pilgrims, that ought to be something that catches our attention right off the bat. Notice chapter 1, verse 17, a little further down in the context. He says, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges each one according to his work, in a section talking about holiness, he says, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. I have mentioned before, you go into a hotel and you stand before that front desk clerk and you talk to them and they say, if we can do anything to make your stay more comfortable, they don't usually say that now in the age of COVID, but if we can do anything to make your stay more comfortable, please let us know your stay. Your stay here. There is implied that you're not meant to stay here. (laughs) This is not your home. This is not what's permanent about you and about who you are. Hotels are designed that eventually you're going to leave and you're going to go back home. Christians, your life is designed not that you can make everything permanent here, but that one day you're going to go home. That's the reason why I said that about what's going on March 5th and 6th. Is because it's about the eternal. It's about us in our stay here, conducting ourselves in fear, not in terror like so many are today, but in a godly reverence to say, I know I'm going home to be with my heavenly father and I want to do everything I can to make him pleased with my life. I want to do everything I can for the good of the cause of Christ, for walking in his steps, because those steps are my steps. I'm committed to taking them. Another one. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, Therefore, since Christ also suffered for us, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh. Once again, you get the idea. We're not here on a permanent visa. We're going home one day. Conduct your time and your stay here in fear. Last one. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and as pilgrims, Peter says, Sojourners, pilgrims, two different words referring to the same thing. Travelers, people on a journey. If you feel too at home in this world, why is that? It's because we haven't thought of ourselves enough as pilgrims and sojourners. If I try and remove every instance of suffering out of my life, you know what? I'm not going to be very much like Jesus If I try and move away from suffering and the things that are going to cause me to suffer for Jesus, I'm not following in his steps. I've cast off what I thought was mine and I've put on something else. I'm not taking the steps that God is pleased with because on this journey, I have a destination in mind and I have a journey to take. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Peter says if you're living right, you can count on the fact that It's going to lead you through suffering. But don't forget the purpose. My kids got for Christmas the game Oregon Trail. It's a card game now. I remember playing Oregon Trail back on the old Apple IIe. And if you haven't had that kind of green chroma vision type of uh, screen experience, I'm sure there's somewhere on the Internet that can give that to you. You can go home and Google it. The Oregon Trail. And my kids enjoy playing the Oregon Trail. And... (laughs) It's a journey from Independence, Missouri, all the way to the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And the time is about 1848. And you might remember this from your childhood or uh, from, uh, from the time. I died of typhoid, by the way. So just, just so you know, when I was playing this game, that was the end result. But thousands of miles in the journey. In reality, experts tell us there were about 20 to 30,000 people that died on the Oregon Trail. Twenty to 30,000 and as they're journeying the question would ask, be asked why in the world would somebody take a journey so perilous why would somebody ever submit themselves to the possibility of getting typhoid or, or dying of dysentery or, or having a wagon wheel break or uh, losing somebody in a river that you're trying to ford and, and having all these horrible horrible things happen to you why would somebody endure such hardship and such suffering why would they go through that because they'd kept the destination in mind. Because they knew if they were able to make it to the Willamette Valley in Oregon, it would be worth it. Folks, we are on our own difficult journey. In life, that's just the reality of it. Life is a journey. We've got to take steps in every day that are just part of living life, burst pipes lack of power, lack of water, all of the horrible things that we endured this past week, those things come to us because we're living life. But the truth of the matter is, is because we are living a Christian life. Now there are additional difficulties and hardships and sorrows that we're going to face as Christians because, simply because we're Christians. Peter says, you get ready for those things. You don't let your faith shrink back because of those things. You're still on this journey. You keep the journey in mind, but you keep the destination in mind because the destination is absolutely worth it. Folks, everything we do in this life is risk. You realize that? Everything we do, we risked getting out of bed this morning and possibly slipping and falling and breaking our neck. We risked getting in our cars this morning and driving here to this building that we were not going to get in some horrible accident that was going to take our life. That's risk. We do so, and we take those steps because we realize it's worth it. People living in fear today and living their lives in such a way that fear just consumes them. I turn on the news, and all it is is bad, 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 bad. And what they do is they never leave their house They hide themselves in their fear. They bury themselves with their fears. But the truth of the matter is the things that are worth risking, the things that are worth possibly bringing us suffering, you leave your house, you stay in your house. You might get COVID. That's just the truth of the matter. You stay in your house, you leave your house, you might run the risk of somebody coming along and and killing you. That's just the truth of the matter. But the steps we take every day as Christians We take because we realize the risk, but we also are committed to following Jesus, and we know the promise of the reward that he's given us. That's the reason why we get out of our house. That's the reason why we take the steps every day to try and share the gospel with our neighbors, to try and live our lives with things and convictions Moral standings, to stand up to say, I know what God said, and I know that you're going to have to stand before God just as much as I am, and I want you to know, and I want you to be ready for the day that you're going to have to stand before God and give an account of your life. That's a risk. And yes, it may bring about suffering, but folks, it doesn't change the destination, it doesn't change the surety of the destination. Something we have that the people in Oregon Trail never had was a surety that they were going to get there. They took those steps because they realized the risk. We take the steps because we know the risk, but we also know there's nothing, nothing, nothing that's going to take away the reward if I'm faithfully following Jesus. Christians, are you doing that? Are you doing that? If not, repent. Pray to God right now, and say, "God, I'm sorry. I haven't been walking the way that a Christian ought to. God, I'm sorry. I haven't been living my life and with the right mind, with the mind of Christ. God, I'm sorry. And I change my mind and my heart. I want to change my life because I know that the destination's worth it. God, forgive me. Help me to be more committed to Your way. Help me to be more serious about my faith. Help me to be more convicted through the journey." even if it leads me through sufferings. If you're not a Christian this morning, your journey is going to lead you to a place that you do not want to be. Jesus would say, broad is the way, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and there are many who would go in there by it. Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. We don't want you to go into destruction. We don't want you to go to hell. And the fact is that because of sin, that's exactly where all mankind is headed, The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6 and verse 23. The only way that we can have the life that God promises to get off that path as it were is to be in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter three tells us he was baptized into Christ, has put on Christ. The only way that you can be saved is through obedience to the gospel. Christians, live your life faithfully. If we can help you do that, we would love to help you. If you're ready to obey the gospel or if you need the prayers and encouragement of the church, if you'd like to sit down and study, please make it known as together we stand and sing our invitation song.